Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back at Sandbird's Rome Formula E victory and ask what really caused Felix Rosenquist's suspension failure. Formula E's first visit to the city of Rome produced a spectacular race, although whether or not you think that had anything to do with the Pope blessing a car in the build-up to the event will depend on your religious outlook. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to discuss Sandbird's victory in the Italian capital, first is Andrew Vanderberg. Now, you've been to, I think, every other Formula E venue, haven't you? And you, you were in Rome. How did it stack up? Yeah, correct. I've been to all, I think that was the 18th different track uh, that they've raced on, and I've been to all of them, and um, I've got to say, I think that was the best. Uh, the way that the city had embraced it, the room that they had, uh, the atmosphere that the fans created was just all absolutely fantastic. Uh, a minus point for the rickety bridges that felt like they might collapse at any moment when you were walking over it, but that's a, a small detail. The village was over this massive building on multiple floors, and I gave myself half an hour to look around, and it wasn't anywhere near enough. And to me, um, it felt like a bit of a landmark event for Formula E. And if this is the model that they can now bring to other cities, uh, they're really going to start getting some serious traction. Well, of course, Rome was meant to be on season one, wasn't it? It was one of the first places. There was an event. Uh, not not a race event, but a Formula E promotional event 
way back in the day, wasn't there? It was the first um, public uh, announcement of the series that was done there. They ran what was originally the Formula Let car, if you can remember that far back, and Degrassi did a little street demo uh, with about 15 kilo, uh, kilowatts of battery power uh, past the Coliseum, but it made for a fantastic um, visual ident for the series. Uh, and it goes to show how far it's come. Also, at the time, uh, there was a lot of internal politics at Rome and about whether they wanted to do it or not. In the five year intervening years, the amount of uh, momentum has got behind electric cars, and more importantly, the, how serious the air pollution uh, index uh, qualities have been taken seriously and the impact that has on people's health, has made it much more pressing for cities to embrace the switch to electric mobility. And that's what is ultimately going to open the doors for Formula E to come into these incredible places. You're always very, very good on the, uh, the messaging for Formula E. I just so ingrained there. in my DNA that I can't wash it out. <laughs> it just so happens to be correct, though, so that that uh, makes it a bit easier. Now, also joining me is Alex Kalanorkas, Autosport's relatively new Formula E correspondent. The one thing this track lacked for me, I only watched the, the race on television from a, a Shanghai hotel room, was some famous backdrops. You didn't see the Colosseum or the Vatican or the, or the Forum. Where actually was it in Rome? Give me a bit of a feel for the geography. So yeah, so it wasn't at any of those very famous sites in Rome, and nor did we go racing around the Circus Maximus. Uh, but it was actually in the, and I'm terrible at pronouncing things for the first time, but the I think it's the uh, it, it's certainly written as the UER district of Rome, which is there. You've bailed out of that. I've totally abandoned it. Yeah, maybe, but perhaps not. Um, You've got to so wave your uh, arms around to be authentically <laughs> Italian, and the pronunciation will come. Um, so it's basically a much more business and residential part of the city. Um, it's way out towards the airports, so no, no not really racing around the city centre. Um, but it's it's famous, of course, for its um, fascist era architecture, which uh, was certainly very imposing. Uh, the buildings were very big, um, <laughs> insightful there. Um, but it wrapped its the, the track wrapped its way around them very very nicely. Um, I can't. God knows whether any of the buildings were particularly full, but there were certainly lots of uh, seats of government and various organisations set up there. Um, the track had different sectors. The final sector was tight and twisty, very familiar to a lot of Formula E races. What was really lovely was that typical of Rome, it had nice elevation changes. There were lots of ups and downs and that created, um, you've got cars doing little jumps, maybe not quite as spectacular as it was being made out to be on TV. Um, but you know, it just it made for a really nice spectacle, and there was one particular uh, segment if you, as, as the cars came out of the tunnel and then went back up the hill, where it, it ran through a park where on race day you had thousands and thousands of people lining these banks in the park, and it just it looked really really good. It looked picturesque. I think that's extremely important. So not necessarily, you know, you can't you can't go plonking things around Buckingham Palace as much as Formula One would love that, but. As long as you can see some great bits of the city, I don't see why that's, uh, why that's a bad thing, really. Well, it produced a very good race as well. One of the better races in the history of Formula E, I'd say. And it's a championship that's produced some some very good races. Sam Bird, of course, won. Uh, no, Alex, he's the second most prolific race winner in Formula E now. I think this was his seventh uh, seventh it victory, was, yeah, so seventh. he's behind only uh, Sebastian Buemi. He said he was a bit surprised by the victory, but I guess we have to consider him a serious title threat now, don't we? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the reason why he was surprised, as we're going to come to a little bit later, was that uh, early leader Felix Rosenquist um, looked like he sort of had, had things under control. But... Um, but yeah, Sam Bird absolutely is in the title hunt. He's up to second now behind Jean-Éric Verne, and he he slashed Verne's points lead quite considerably in Rome. Um, in Mexico, two rounds ago, Sam, uh, Sam and his teammate Alex Lynn they had gearbox changes, which put them down the grid. And as we as we know in Formula E, if you're not up towards the front in qualifying, you're in for quite a difficult race. Um, so you know, up to seven now, he's won. I think is it two races this season now. Yep, should probably definitely know that. But yeah, he's, um, so yeah, he's he's right in the hunt. 
I spoke to Sam pre-season. I saw him in uh, Bahrain where he was driving for Ferrari and WEC. And uh, I sort of asked him what he felt his chances were, were like. And uh, he completely written them off because I, I think it's quite an, an openly known now that DS have done virtually no development of its powertrain for this year, being much more focused on uh, the Season 5 car, which will be coming online uh, relatively soon. So bar a few sort of tweaks to the software and stuff like that. It's effectively the car they had last year where, you know, the other teams have had a, the opportunity to make significant gains. And we saw in pre-season testing the Audi being a very dominant looking package. So they felt their prospects were going to be very, very little. Yet, as you quite rightly say, he's right in the thick of a championship battle now. I wonder whether the car does have the ultimate pace. Um, but we've seen that Bird is an incredibly canny racer that's able to hustle a result out of a car when it might, might not necessarily be there. And sometimes that's all you need. Uh, and we could be in a situation, and I'm preempting a point we might talk about later on, but I would be amazed if both Degrassi and Boemi don't end this season with a win. Uh, and so if they're getting in and, and winning races, then being able to hustle a car onto the podium is probably the sort of performance you need to, to bring that championship home. And it'd be interesting as well, because he's a driver who hasn't actually got a single-seater championship to his name, despite the fact he's competed for, for many. I think Formula BMW, GB, way back in his early days, GP2. He did win the LMP2 title in WEC, but he's, he's a very, very, very good driver. So it, it'd be merited if he can have a run at the title. And it'd be good to have a former player of the autosport cricket team having a, a major international title. Absolutely. I mean, you, you can't overestimate the importance of that in the, on his career CV. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, he took a, took a few wickets for us. A, a handy bowler, in fact. Well, Alex, you did mention Felix Rosenquist, who led the first uh, first two-thirds of the race. It looked to be in his pocket. It's the second time this season he's retired while leading, albeit this was with some damage to the suspension rather than a, a mechanical, well, an outright mechanical problem. But there is some doubt about the exact cause. Was it Was it self-inflicted? Was it a failure that was caused by some weakness that was within the normal parameters of use. Who's to blame? So after the race, well, during the race when it was called, it suggested that he clipped a curb and that's what happened. I think he may even have said that over the team radio because it's a bit difficult to hear from where I was at. In the immediate aftermath of the race, he didn't come out and say, yeah, I hit a curb or I hit a barrier. And Felix is the sort of guy who, if he's made a mistake, I think he'd put his hands up and own it. And that struck me as a bit odd in that he, he wasn't doing that and he was adamant that they, you know, they needed to investigate and see what see what was going on. But when you know, he's late, he's late to come out, and I've read elsewhere that he said that, that there was some sort of very strange suspension breakage which occurred. So whether that was a consequence of something that he did or was just a, an ongoing problem with the car, you could see all the way through qualifying, especially that was that one particular high curb on the exit of the, through the final sequence that he was routinely hammering. Um, and one of the things he said is he didn't do anything different. Well, if you hit a speed bump at 30 mile an hour on your way to work every day, you're not going to uh, break the exhaust off your car the first time, but the 40th or 50th time you do it, it's going to have a, a knock-on effect. And I think uh, he had no need to be pushing it quite that hard then, and you need to build in those margins, uh, and he didn't. Uh, it's a long time since we've seen those suspension breakages on Formula E cars, but certainly in the first season, uh, any aggressive usage of the kerb could see you breaking your suspension in a Kroon Chandok style massive spin into the wall. Yeah, there was it's Punta de Aste, was it? Both him and Degrassi had an almost identical suspension failure, which was as a direct result of attacking the curbs. I mean not in a stupidly over aggressive way, but in a in a way that, you know, the massive repetition of it ultimately causes a stress failure. Um so I have sympathy and Rosenquist is just brilliant to watch. But I think if you're going to repeatedly take those sort of chances it's going to bite you ultimately. And the big question is, as you said, he didn't actually need to be 
doing that. So why wasn't he kind of consolidating, I guess, if you wanted to be as, that's as critical as you can be of a driver who has the race in the bag and, and loses it. You know, once you've done all the hard work, which he had by getting himself into that position, was there benefit him just taking it a tiny bit easy and maybe just being a bit more conservative with the curbs? Well, it's tricky to say that because as we know, the different strategies played out in the way they did, whereas all the, all the guys that ran a lap longer massively came back in the second stint and Degrassi put Bird out. Mitch Evans did it first of all, and then Degrassi got past, put Bird under massive pressure right at the very, very end of the race. So potentially he, you know, he did need to push on and that was why he kept doing it. But it's, he's had three problems in three races. So he had the battery management, battery system problem in Mexico that dropped him out of the lead. So there's 50 points gone there immediately from, from Mexico and from Rome, but also in Ponce del Esther, he recovered from a bit of a scruffy qualifying, charged through the field, but was actually hindered by the fact that there was a, there was a sensor a transponder in the car that was, uh, wasn't talking to his dash properly. So it was saying he was on, he, he it, it was the incorrect number of laps to go. Uh, and that meant that he had to sort of guess at how the energy was going. So that sort of stunted his charge a little bit. So that's three races where they've had three sort of reliability setbacks certainly he's faces an enormous uphill battle to get back in his championship now uh had he have won the race and jeff was running seventh or eighth at the time it was going to wipe out almost all of uh the points lead possibly actually even reverse it around now he's an enormous amount behind i know things change very quickly in formally and we saw last year with the points advantage Boemi had get uh, whittled down but uh He's really on the back foot now. It, it, it looks almost like a two-horse race between uh, Vern and Bird. Yeah, it's 37 points now with, with five races running. It's a shame for Rosenquist because he's, he's a driver who brings something to every championship he races, isn't he? He's a really quick, classy, good driver. So it's a shame he's not in that in that title fight. But actually, mention of Jean-Eric Vern, Alex, he was a fairly subdued fifth. So does that go down as a bad day or is this one of those examples of a champion winning of the title on their bad days because if you come away from a bad weekend with fifth rather than 18th then that's a huge points advantage isn't it mm. well it absolutely is in that i'm pretty sure by finishing fifth in rome he just equals his worst finish of the season with with i think he was fifth in mexico but i have to say it was a bad day for him because if it hadn't been for rosenquist dropping out and mitch evans then tumbling down the order in the last lap he would have been seventh and he did seem to be subdued all day. He didn't make Super Bowl. He was a bit, I mean, he was unlucky at the start of the race because he got absolutely whacked by Alex Lynn on the first lap and was sort of a little bit hobbled from there. But it was only when he got in his second car that he seemed to come alive a little bit. And he said after the race, you know, I was slow and I'm not, I'm not really sure why. And that's something he definitely needs to look for uh, ahead of Paris. But I spoke to his team boss, Mark Preston at Tachita, and he said that both as both uh, practice sessions were disrupted by red flags, it meant he never got a full power 200 kilowatt lap. And Mark was saying that, you know, the flow of the weekend and the way you go from getting yourself settled in in practice to getting the the practice of doing those uh, full power efforts really is really important in Formula E. You need to get that momentum and that's what can can unsettle you over a day. Um, he also hurt his hand um uh, swapping cars on on the Friday during during practicing that, um, but he says that didn't cause any issues. So obviously we have to. How did he manage to that. injure his hand doing that? What, what were the mechanics of the the incident? Well, I wasn't I wasn't there myself, but it's quite an intensive process as we've seen, and a controversial one because the FIA have had to install cameras above the cars to make sure that the teams and the drivers aren't doing anything untoward. It's, it's a difficult one as well if you're one of the big drivers watching the the live race coverage. You see someone like Sam Bird, who's about two foot one. And he just sort of moves, slides in in one movement. But you watch someone like Lucas Degrassi or Jean-Eric Verne, who are much taller. And it, it, it's not a smooth process, is it? You see it, they have to sort of fold their legs. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not as easy for them to do it. So I guess if you're, if you're someone like Jeff, it's possible to do that if you're flinging yourself around. And, uh... 
Absolutely. And his teammate, Andre Lotterow, who finished third in Rome, uh, said exactly that after the race. He said, I'm, I'm too tall for these cars. So pit stops are a big problem for some of the drivers. Yeah, well, that'll be a thing of the past once we're on to, to one car races. So that's uh, that's something to look forward to for the for the bigger drivers in the field. Now, we also saw Sebastian Buemi and Lucas Degrassi. They still haven't won this year. They, they both had OK results. Lucas Degrassi was second. Sebastian Buemi was sixth. But, Andrew, what, what's going on there? These are the two grandees of Formula E. We expected it to be a title fight between the two. Degrassi was probably the favourite coming into the season based on the, the race pace of the Audi, but neither of them have won. I know. Uh, it's astonishing. I, I wouldn't have even given you a, a, an odd on uh, this being the, uh, the case this far into the season. I... I guess the uh, the Bohemi situation is slightly more understandable in that Renault's already confirmed that it's leaving the championship at the end of the season and there is a sort of, you know, last few days of school feeling around there. And I don't think you can underestimate uh, the fact that uh, Jean-Paul Drio hadn't been at any of the races up until this one. It's the first one that, he, that he'd appeared at. But they seem to have definitely lost the sweet spot on that car. Um, Audi, on the other hand, I mean, they, they were the dominant force of testing. Uh they are sort of redefining the uh, level of resource and professionalism in the championship. And it remains uh, just one of those weird twists of fate that uh, Degrassi, because he had those retirements at the beginning of the season, was in the wrong qualifying group and was sort of routinely drawn in the wrong uh, bits. They didn't qualify so well. It's surely only a matter of time until he wins one of these races. You know, on the uh, Formula E predictor, I have him in first place every race because it, it, one of the, like a broken watch being right twice a day at some point he is going to win one of these races and I imagine if he can just get track position he's going to absolutely destroy the field because in the re- his race pace has just always been very strong and I just had on Boemi in Rome in that he said afterwards that um, they had an energy management problem on his second car too which was so bad to the point where they're at, he actually actually hoping that they find something abnormal to explain that because he had he had no other reason as to why he, he went backwards in the second stint it is strange, isn't it? It shows how in Formula E these small margins make make all the difference, which is what you want to see. So we see this fluctuation where you don't really know who's going to be. Well, you know the drivers will be in and around the front on a weekend, but you can't go into a weekend saying right X is going to win, which is which is very positive because there, there was the fear that by now, with the manufacturers involved and the money being spent, that you might start to see bigger gaps. But it seems to work really, really, really well. And of course, you've got still got teams like Mahindra up front fighting with the with the sort of bigger manufacturers yeah i was uh, i've just been writing a piece uh, on the chatita team saying you know that the narrative up until now really has been how successful formula e has been in dragging the manufacturers in and obviously it's a fantastic achievement in getting mercedes porsche bmw audi nissan all lining up to come in but to me the real story is that an independent customer team is actually able to win the championship in spite of all of this in spite of the, the manufacturers coming in, you can still go to Renault, buy a powertrain off the shelf, plug in a couple of decent drivers, and, and you're right up there. We'll see whether that um, remains when the, the new car, the new rules package come in, but I think they absolutely hit the sweet spot with these rules between allowing the form of technical innovation while at the same time creating a close enough playing field. We've had eight different teams on the podium this season, which, uh, you know, I don't know, I can't imagine there's another... Um, most racing series where that's been the case so far. And to that point, uh, with Audi finishing second and fourth, their team boss, Alan McNish, said afterwards that he was pleased with a great recovery performance from them because they qualified well down the grid. Uh, Degrassi said he he clipped the wall twice in, in qualifying and that's why he missed out on Super Pole. So to come back through the pack, they were they were very chuffed with second and fourth. 
Well, of course, they also benefited from the fact Mitch Evans departed the the scene right near the end of the race. He'd really livened it up with his with his charge, getting into contention at one stage. You were thinking, well, he could he could go on and and fight for victory here, but then basically out out of energy at the end and limping to the line to avoid using more than his his allocated energy. So, what what was the reason for that? Was it just him looking a bit of a hero because he used up too much energy, or was it just the vagaries of the battle he was in? Meant so, that he was in trouble. Yeah, so he says that there were two full-course yellows in the race. So the second one was when Rosenquist's car stopped just after the start-finish line. And right at that point when Rosenquist uh, retired was when Evans was leading the charge back to the leading two drivers. So he was homing in on Bird and Rosenquist, um, using up his energy advantage that he got from running a lap longer, as had Degrassi and Lotterer, uh, etc. behind. Um, so by the time he caught Bird at the full-course yellow, he'd used it. His advantage was gone. Uh, so he had one chance to attack when the racing resumed, which he did, but he didn't quite pull it off. And that he lost a little bit of momentum. Bird was able to escape and that breathing space uh, helped um, Sam Bird in the end win the race. Um, but when Evans got passed by Degrassi, he then had a monumental scrap with Andre Lotterer. It was absolutely terrific coming up. There, there were two bumps coming up the hill into turn nine and uh, Lotterer would get on the outside coming out of it, heading into turn 10 and just try and put his car where they're it looked like one couldn't go round, and Evans rebuffed him and rebuffed him. But unfortunately, that put his energy in, in you know, into the red, as it were. And uh, Lotterer did eventually get past in that spot. But it's such a shame for Evans because he th- he said himself he thought he had checkmate on Bird because he had that energy advantage. We're definitely going to see him win a race before the end of the year. I'd be shocked if he didn't. He's been so so quick getting into Super Pole, absolutely nailing it. And uh, and, and yeah, I really think he's going to win a race before the end of the season. He's a driver who's always been a bit of a star, isn't he, Mitch Evans? It's never he's a, he was a driver in what you might say is orthodox single seater career where things sort of came together now and then, but then sort of stagnated a little bit in GP two. He didn't always have the best opportunities, and never felt we quite saw the best of him, even though he did have a lot of success. So for him to be in Formula E and excelling is, is very positive. It shows that he's a he's a classy driver and just the kind of driver they need in Formula E, someone who can make a star name for himself in that category. That's exactly the point. I think in Evans and Rosenquist, uh, they, they're they there making the stars. Uh, it's great to have ex-F1 drivers like uh, Vern and Degrassi and Bohemi or whatever. And also those guys have been uh, very successful in sports cars as well. But the championship now needs to start creating his own stars. And I think in those two, they're both fantastically exciting to watch, super talented, uh, and obviously got a very long future ahead of them. And uh, I would totally agree with Alex. I'd be amazed if he hasn't won a race before the end of the season. And great for Jaguar too. Yeah, absolutely. It was a difficult start when it first joined the series last year, but it's getting there every race. Every, you know, it's they're right up there on pace. Um, Nelson Piquet's had a few problems in the last couple of races, especially in qualifying. Uh, he retired from this race because uh, he it was this, his turn this time round to become a victim of the lack of uh, minimum pit stop time, which has been rather controversial in recent Formula E events. So he something went wrong with the seatbelts and he and he stopped. Um, but yeah, Jaguar is coming and I think Evans is leading the charge there. Just to digress a little bit, talk about the, the energy available. I think it was in, it must have been in your Old Sport magazine report when you talked about Jean D'Ambrosio, who also did that strategy. And there was a comment in there where you said he deliberately didn't nail the start because he was 16th on the grid anyway, except he was going to drop to the back to avoid using too much energy for that start. Is it is it that critical that if you don't do a, a racing start, you can kind of buy yourself a lot of performance down the line? Yeah, so absolutely. So I, I had to double check with him when he said, you know, I didn't even take the start. I just I just let go of the, of the brakes and rolled it off because he said, you know, first of all, you're not hitting the wrong turn will be the gas pedal, but you're not hitting for that immediate hit power there. But also when they bunch up at the hairpin, 
you've just charged down to it and then you've wasted your energy doing that. So it was a very sensible move from D'Ambrosio there on what was a difficult weekend for the Dragon team. He uh, he missed setting a qualifying lap uh, because the team just got the timing wrong. I mean, it was, it was shocking. The same thing happened uh, Luke, to Luca Filippi at uh, Neo. And that was that was that was pretty poor. But what a great recovery from D'Ambrosio. That was seriously impressive. Look forward to everyone at the back doing that now in future if the track configuration is right. Yeah, well, Frines did it uh, in Hong Kong um, in the first year when he had a massive shunt uh, in uh, qualifying out to start last. And I joked with him on the grid saying, so what, you're just going to sort of hold back and, and let them all sort of drive into each other? And, and, and that's exactly what he did. And um, to Alex's point, when the uh, the guys were making their first stop, uh, Dan Rose had 22% energy left. Uh, and and if if you're able to have that much in reserve, and you, especially if you you get lucky with the four course yellows, uh, which he did, um, you you are you can be so competitive relative to what your mean pace is, and that dragon is not a fast car uh, that you can. What, was it seventh in the end? You know, you you get a, you get a very decent haul of points despite not necessarily having the pace. And what was interesting was that Antonio Felix da Costa went the other way in that he was charging so hard in the first stint that he actually pitted a lap earlier than everyone else. But he still he started last because he had a, a rather embarrassing pit lane shunt with Jose Maria Lopez. Um, but he charged up. He ended up finishing in eleventh, just outside the points. But it really does show you that. Different strategies make Formula E very, very exciting. And again, this is a slight divergence, but with a season five car, if there's going to be no pit stop, they're going to have to think long and hard about how to spice up the racing. We know there's going to be different power modes, but they've got to make sure that that creates an interesting spectacle because otherwise what's going to happen, we're going to have bigger, wider cars on what are already very quite narrow tracks a lot of the time, not being able to overtake each other. That's a very, very good point. And in fact, mention of that car, the Gen 2 car, which has been rumbling around, well, or not rumbling, being a being Formula E, what, what do we know about progress with that? What are we expecting to see from it? Um, the feedback over the weekend was that the um, McLaren assembled a battery. It's probably the best way because the cell technology actually comes in, in from the states is uh, is a work of art. Uh, it has virtually no thermal degradation, so you can just plow on uh, throughout the race without it losing power, which has been one of the problems. Uh, problems one of the issues that this uh current batteries had and that was the best the technology was uh, available to williams at the time it just goes to show how that technology is advancing that time but that will mean that we won't be seeing people have to back off in order to keep the, the temperature of the battery down they'll be able to just race on um so by all accounts uh, a big thumbs up to everyone involved in the battery technology good technology but as alex says variables are the things that create racing aren't they so is there a concern that when we get the new car we might just see cars circulating at their pace without so many reasons for things to be livened up and people to be going quick one minute slow the next i'm gonna have to be a bit cryptic here because um i know something that i can't talk about about the race format for next year is it reverse grids (laughs) um but i i think it's quite a, a smart solution to that and you will see different drivers being quick at different times without so the story won't really unfold until the final laps and, and it all sort of plays out. Um, who, it's hard to know exactly how successful that's going to be. The other thing to note is that the tyres for next year are a bit softer and there will be a bit of tyre degradation. So while they might not necessarily be managing the thermal heat of the battery, uh, they will be trying to keep their tyres in that optimal working window. 
Well, Angie, the next race is Paris, April the 28th, another old European city and a, a place that should produce an interesting race. So what, what should we expect from there? First of all, you will be able to see one of your iconic backdrops, Ed, as well as leave the leads, obviously, the Tomb of Napoleon. If from the right corner, you can see the Eiffel Tower. So is this one of those things, if you climb up the fence and stand on the post and really lean over, just, you can just see it? Just about. Um, but the track, uh, the, cra- the track is quite tight and challenging. Um, it's produced uh, sort of... Uh, a lot of safety cars before because through the final sector uh, if you have a shunt there as uh, Ma did the first time uh, he was informally ironically enough um, then uh, it causes the it, it's very difficult to retrieve the car so it'll almost certainly be a, a safety car at some point in the race uh, last year it came right in the middle of the pit stop phase and, and threw it open quite randomly and then we had another one right at the end of the race which uh uh, there was a really, really strange restart. If you look back at the results, the gap between sixth and seventh is about a minute. Um, it was uh, it was one of the more extraordinary ones. But it's a it's a great event to be at. You're um, you're again another great city. Um, but as I alluded to, there's a bit of a driver change because uh, unfortunately for him, uh, that was Luca Filippi's uh, last race for the time being. Uh, he's been switched out of the Neo team in favour of Mark Winghar. Uh Possibly a bit harsh, but Felipe only delivered one point, whereas Turvey had been on the, the podium. So I think the team felt it's a Chinese team with lots of Chinese investment. What worse could he do? You know, if you're not getting any points on that side of the garage, at least we can carry favour with our backers and, and put a Chinese guy in there. And in fairness to him, um, and when he first arrived on the scene, Ma was actually quite good. I, he struggled a little bit last year when he was uh, at Techita up against uh, Jeff, but I think a lot of drivers would in that situation. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see how match fit he is and uh, whether he can uh, get that car into the top. But I, I think anything in the sort of the top fifteen would be a good result for him. He's one of those drivers, isn't he? Who he, he's never really had a really good run at everything. I guess World Touring Cars was probably the one exception. But I remember when he came into Formula One doing some reserve driver work with with HRT. It was just thrown in the deep end. He struggled to sort of put together full seasons and that kind of thing. And you sort of looked and you thought, actually, this guy here has got a bit of raw material, raw ability about him. But again, being thrown in, kind of in the middle of the, the Formula E season, it's going to be very difficult for him to, to do anything than be down near the back against this calibre opposition. Oh, you're quite right. He's got the most unbelievably um, sketchy CV going all the way back to when he randomly turned up in uh, in A1GP uh, ah, in, course, in, yeah. in those days. And him and everyone else. Him and everyone else that, you know, oh, oh my granddad went to, to China once. Uh, um, so, yeah, we don't, we don't really know, I think, what his ultimate potential is. But as you quite rightly say, the level of driving standards on that grid is so high that sort of anything off the back is a bit of a result. Including his uh, his teammate, Oliver Turvey, who's one of the best in Formula E, I think. You know, he's, he's perhaps a little bit underrated because he's quite an understated character, but he's absolutely terrific. You look at his start at the weekend, he just thought back to when he did the same thing in Hong Kong, go around around the, around the outside and he made a bloody position, which is actually absolutely what he did. Uh, he, also, he also had a bit of an energy management scare towards the end of the first stint which culminated in him having to go so slowly that he got tapped into an incident at the hairpin with Nick Heidfeld, where his former teammate, or I think he's still in the fold, Luca Felipe ploughed into the back of him with Eduardo Mortara. Fortunately, they all managed to escape. <laughs> that was a good old-fashioned street track traffic jam, wasn't it? We, we always enjoy seeing those. It should have been in a, a mid-2000s champ car race featuring a load of anonymous Mexicans. Exactly, yeah. And somebody really slow just nips around the outside of everyone to make up, make up 12 places. <laughs> Well, as we mentioned, the next Formula E race will be in Paris on April 28th. So in the meantime, keep checking out autosport.com for all the news and features on Formula E and all the rest of the world of motorsport. And also check out our Plus subscriber area for in-depth features by all of our all of our best racers. Also check out sister title, motorsport.com and F1 Racing. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. <laughs>
Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.